I was telling him uh, earlier that I'd been asked to write a biography, a short biography, and um, it, it was a kind of stunning project to be given. I'm, I'm still thinking about it. It's, it's very strange to have to sit down and, and write about your own life, or at least it feels that way to me. We always try, at least I always try to have a kind of overall picture of how things are, and then I realize that there isn't any overall picture. Um, It happens over and over again. Uh, And certainly in in life, a life, um, there isn't any overall picture either, except in retrospect. And when we stop in place and look back over the years, then it looks like um, things all fit together and all happened in some kind of perfectly logical way. (laughs) Um, It isn't really like that at all. And certainly, um, our lives in practice aren't, aren't like that. I've been thinking a great deal about what it is to to do this um, practice, so-called practice, as um, ordinary citizens in an ordinary world. Um, It's nothing special. We don't wear special clothes. We don't um, um, get up in the morning and... and, um, create another life for ourselves. We create our life, the life of our practice in the life of our, our ordinary world. Uh, to me, that's a very, very beautiful thing and, and essential in this time especially, but probably every time. Our tendency always is to gussy things up and... Um, if we get something good to, to make it more. This practice and life itself keeps bringing us back to uh, where we are and when we are. We can't get too far fixing everything up um, in a fancy way. Uh, life keeps undoing it for us. And we can't really rest on whatever happened before. Um, Whatever comes next is our challenge. But it's very sweet to look back and quite amazing, actually. Um, When I was a child, I grew up in a suburb of St. Louis, Missouri. And I would walk through the suburb, along the sidewalks under the shady trees, and look at the houses and wonder if there was anybody in any of those houses who knew about it. And I didn't know what exactly it was, but I, I could feel it. And I, I listened everywhere that I went for it. The first time I heard it was at, at college in a Quaker meeting house. The meeting house was right on campus tiny little thing that was built 150 years ago or so. And there it was. It was so remarkable in that silence. Sometimes I 
I feel how thirsty we are for this silence, this untalkaboutable practice that we has discovered us, you could say, has found us. Coben used to say, with tears in his eyes, how grateful he is to meditation itself. Just meditation. Not all the fancy ideas around it, not all the foundation, this isn't that, but just, just the sitting itself. How it sustains us and teaches us. And in a way, carries us. When I first started practicing, there were almost no books written about this. This. Alan Watts. Alan Watts. That was just about it. And then um, Philip Kaplow, who just passed away just this last week. A pioneer. The first one that anybody knows about in Zen who went to Japan. He had heard about Zen, probably from Alan Watts, and uh, decided he wanted to go and and see it for himself. And he had very strong ideas about it and found a teacher, a Zen master in a Zen temple. And the first thing the master did was to lead him to the altar beautiful altars they have, very fancy in Japan, with um, all kinds of golden things hanging down and big candelabra with candles in and, and a big incense burner. And, and what you do is to go and offer incense as a meeting. You meet at, as the altar itself, as, as the focus and the center of, of all. So the master took Philip Kaplow, a gangling kid and um, offered incense and Kaplow said to him I thought you were supposed to burn the Buddha and spit on the altar and the master looked at him and he said it's okay you spit I'm going to offer the incense And that opened up a whole world that traveled all the way here, one of the many worlds that opened up and and arrived at this point right now here. It's, It's amazing to think about that one is moved by something and that movement continues and is, is opened up in many, many different ways. Kaplow Roshi has, has established a, a fantastic extremely rigid and perfectly Japanese uh, practice place in New York York State. Um, He's he's famous for being uh, completely doing it the Japanese way. No American uh, softening of the edges at all. So he went from spitting at the altar to bringing Japan in one big piece over and putting it down. And then his the one who is going to inherit it and take over for him, a very feisty woman, um, whose name I'm forgetting right now, um, 
she was trained by him extremely rigidly and extremely carefully and was very, very good at all of it. And at one point she decided that all those bells and whistles weren't it. And she said when she takes over, she's going to do it her way. And Kaplow Roshi said, no way, her way. And so she went off and created her own completely simplified version of it and has many, many students. She's also in New York, um, but has many, many students here in California. And that's just one little hunk of Zen. That's not the Vajrayana. That's not the Theravada. That's not the Chinese Zen and the in the Thich Nhat Hanh school, which has both uh, Vipassana and Zen all mixed up together, it's quite something where we are right now. Quite wonderful what we've uh, inherited or what soaked us up, you could say, and brought us here and came to satisfy our thirst or begin to satisfy our thirst. And yet, it's so difficult. It's so difficult, this sitting practice. And the more more connected we become, the more um, the ground uh, that holds us is uh, <coughs> clarified. The more ourself we become, the more honest we become the more aware we are of the suffering in the world. So much of all of our attitudes are based on trying to modify and qualify our our knowledge about how things really are. It's very hard to go there, as they say. And yet, the, the longer we practice, the more... We, we have no choice. First, our own um, many complications arise, um, show us who we are and how we are. And then as those things become uh, transparent, you could say, nothing goes away. I always say, you know, we're still mostly a mess, um, but we see through what that is. We see through our illusions and delusions and begin to see how it is with everyone, how hard it is for everyone. The illusions and delusions that we're all struggling with, trying to make our way. And yet in Zen, what we say is we're always arriving. We're not making our way at all. It's we're we're where actually every step we take is an arrival. Here we are. And here we are. Moment by moment. I just came back from Boulder, Colorado, which is a kind of hotbed of, of Buddhism, so-called Buddhism, the way the Bay Area is. Um, there's lots of it going on. I stayed at a... Um, uh, one of Coben's students' house, and in his backyard, he has built two yurts 
one for a zendo and one for a hondo, where where he where talks are given. So um, that's the Zen center in Boulder, and then there are infinite, practically infinite numbers of other little groups that are meeting in in um, many different ways, including the Naropa University, which Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the the wild and crazy um, Tibetan teacher uh, established back in the late 60s and the early 70s. It's still going strong. And it's a kind of amalgamation of all the uh, Buddhisms, you could say, all the different flavors. Coben used to teach there, and some of his calligraphy is hanging on the wall next to all this Tibetan stuff that's going on that's very bright and shiny and bright red and, and uh, gorgeous. It's beautiful to see how it's beginning to, to come together. I also went up to Shambhala Center, which was also founded by Chogyam uh, uh, Trungpa. Uh, it's a retreat center, 300 acres, way high up in the mountains, close to the Wyoming border. And they um, give enormous retreats. They've set up tents that hold 150 people two tents that hold 150 people so they can do two different retreats at the same time. It's amazing. And they've built, they're still in the process of building um, a stupa. Do you know stupas? It's, it's a huge building. Um, well, as big as this room and three, four stories tall. Um, and it has inside one of those enormous Buddhas, um, that's about a story and a half tall, at least as high as this roof, this ceiling. Um, It's not finished yet. It has construction all around it. It's kind of spooky to see it because it's peering out between these. But it's a beautiful Buddha, and it's sitting just like this. And then there's elaborate floors with beautiful flowers and fruits and things inlaid in the floor. And there's Coben's calligraphy, um, along with various little shrines and things. Also an amalgamation. And then upstairs, there are two other floors that are closed to most people. And uh, that's where they do their practices, the the people who live there. and upstairs is an image of, um, what's it called, Yabyum. Um, a man and a woman in a sexual embrace, standing. They're also more than life-size, very, very tall and very beautiful, uh, gorgeous. She's bright red and he's bright blue. And um, one of them is wisdom and one of them is compassion. I wonder if you know which is which. What would you think? The woman is wisdom and the man is compassion. It's, it's a, a fantastic development of a very basic teaching of, of Shakyamuni Buddha. I, I think it comes from his earth-touching gesture in his enlightenment that everything came back down to the earth in his, in his opening in his enlightenment, that 
before everyone was striving toward heaven and to make a heavenly connection. And Buddha brought it back down. It's here. The earth was his witness. And so the embodiment of the practice, the embodiment of passion, compassion, wisdom, which is really just two things, isn't it? I mean, one thing of two things, or two things of, sorry, I can't say it. Um, in Zen, we say not one, not two. It's, it's both neither. But it's the vitality of it, the fierce vitality of being a body in the world. And being this connection being actually where the vertical and the horizontal meet. We're always caught with the horizontal. We're always trying to get somewhere. And faster and faster, it feels like. But the, the vertical connection um, keeps us where we are. In, in Chinese art, they talk about um, heaven, earth, and man. And man, human is is this vertical and horizontal between, the between. Or, as Buddha said, the middle. So after all these years of practice in so-called Zen, um, I always hate to call it anything. It just seems to distort things, to get too caught up with the names of it. But... Um, in another sense, it's so pra- pra- precious that we have to say something and say something about it. It's, it's most wonderful to see how it changes and grows. And my only real regret is that I won't live long enough, not 500 years enough, to see where it's all going. How is this going to, how is this going to be? Where is it going to be? watching Gil change and his group change over these years has been a very heartening and inspiring, uh, very inspiring for me. When we, I first met with him and his group, it was down on Cowper many, 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 many years ago. And from that point, he... He didn't do anything. He always said, I'm not doing anything. He just came to sit with people. It was a very, very cool and kind and generous thing that he brought. I often think it's, it's something like it would be to go to Kinshasa or something and just start to sit. You know, that one of us could go and just begin sitting there and learn the language slowly and begin to relate with people and begin to find Buddha in, in every place. It isn't that, that a teacher goes and um, presents Buddha to people. It's that a teacher goes and and finds Buddha everywhere. It's very important to know that. Each one of us. 
And Gil has given that to all of us. He brings it to us over and over again. So he's willing to be Buddha for us so that we can be Buddha. And be Buddha for others, all others. That's what the wisdom and compassion is. It's opening up to others. Though we usually start to practice to save ourselves. Um, I certainly did. I thought I was drowning in a very nasty place. And uh, coming to sit was really felt like salvation. But after a while, we begin to realize it's not just for me. If it's just for me, it isn't really it. We only really begin to open up when we start to give. The first paramita, the first way of crossing over this this tight, jammed up place that we call I. If we can give even the smallest, even one kind word, already it begins to untangle our tangle and the practices follow from there. So I always think my job is to come and just encourage us all, including myself. And um, I'm always very encouraged just to see so many sincere people doing their best. Sometimes the world seems like a pretty grim place. And yet, look, look. So that's all that I've thought to say. And um, I would like very much to hear what you all have to say. You can have some kind of dialogue, questions, comments um, for a few minutes. Yes. What you say is very warming to my heart. Mm. Um, Especially because of the emphasis on just sitting um, and seeing Buddha, looking looking and finding Buddha. Um, What I'm... Dealing with these days is a lot of thoughts having to do with wanting to help mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because I'm, I'm in the process of gradually retiring from teaching. Um, and and I, I keep getting confused a little bit in terms of, well, what shall I do? Yes. And, and yet, I keep coming back to, well, just just being here. You know, we, in, in, in this culture, especially, we have this, um, this idea that we have to do something particular mm-hmm. um, and achieve you know, something yeah. tangible. Um, and yet, it, it's going on all the time. And we don't need to be anything special. Mm-hmm. So, 
<laughs> I guess I'm just appreciating what you're saying. Yeah. And I'd love any, any comment on all that. <laughs> Thank you. That's, it's everybody's question. We're so over-informed. We're informed up to here about everything that happens. Yeah. Everything. Including especially all the tragic things and all the difficulties and all the, mm, the mess. Yeah. The big mess that it is. I um, was just reminded that Shanti Deva, you know Shanti Deva, the famous teacher way back, and he, uh, the one who introduced the bodhisattva practice, the, the many practices of, um, of uh, saving all sentient beings, it's called, or being with all beings. Uh, being. He didn't do anything but sit. And he was taunted and, and scorned by his fellow monks because that's all he did. They said, he just eats and sleeps and shits and that's all he ever does. What good is he, right? <laughs> And yet, and yet nobody remembers their names. <laughs> and Shanti Deva. <laughs> but we don't need to be remembered either. We won't be remembered. Any of us will be remembered any more than five minutes after we're gone. But what we do is important. And, and how satisfied with what we've done is also important. So finding what that is, is, is worth doing. Um, and some people are, are enormously uh, what, imaginative, I guess, like um, Beth. You all know Beth also, Beth Goldring. Um, she's a, a Zen priest who decided to go to Cambodia and work with children and and their parents who are dying of AIDS in the slums of Phnom Penh. I always think of Beth as sort of the, <laughs> the ultimate of, if you're going to do something, that's the kind of thing that one would do. Uh, but almost, as she's the only one I know who's ever done anything like that. And that she's doing that doesn't mean that these small things, that we're so-called small things, apparently small things, are small. It's actually equal. It's what we can give, what we can do. And as, as time goes on, gates open, you could say. I always think we're liminal creatures. We're always on the, on the doorstep, just about to step through a new gate, a new door, and see what happens next, where we can put our hand, what calls us. In Zen, we say um, compassion is hearing the cries of the world and then choosing what we can do out of all of that. Good luck. <laughs> Transition time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Of all these years, 
And just noting and being there and present and seeing that you're not the body, you're not the mind, you're not your emotions, you're not this, you're not that. Mm. How can you come to write a biography? (laughs) 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 It's impossible. (laughs) It it is impossible. It's ridiculous. And it's, in this case, it's a very short one for Shambhala because they want something for their brochure. So it's really simple. I've kept a journal for my whole life, actually, since I was 11 years old. And I still have them. I don't know why. It's a whole shelf full of little notebooks. And sometimes when I'm trying to remember what happened in the past, I, I will get a clear idea in my own mind of what it was, and then I'll go and look it up. And my memory is almost always wrong. It's almost, not, it's almost always not the way I wrote it down at the moment. We t- our, our minds just do that. We, we start making... We've got a, an ongoing story. And everything has to fit the story. And if it doesn't, we just clip it off. <laughs> that didn't happen. I'm sorry. <laughs> so it's impossible, really. It's all kind. Of, it's all an illusion. On the other hand, it's like our life. You know, we have to get up and brush our teeth and say hello to each other and find our way. So we do those things, um, laughing about it a little bit. Nobody takes it seriously anyway. <laughs> I asked the question because. I go through the same thing. I have a world and then I thought of start writing. Yes. All the different things and practices spiritual life went through and what it did. And, and, and mm-hmm. I look back and I say, uh, you know, where I am now and what I've done. And I thought, all right, all right, you know, it may be useful for someone. Well, but it I can be. Even, it can be very useful. Each one of us has a story that is really everybody else's story too. You know, it's you must experience that when you, when somebody asks a question and you're so glad they did because that's your question too. Um, or or somebody tells a difficulty that she's going through and and it's the same thing I'm going through and it feels so much better to know somebody else is going through it too. I think books are that way. They're, they're reflecting uh, another aspect of our own life to us and nurturing us and, and helping us to clarify our life. So if you have the chutzpah to do it, it uh, would be a big gift to everyone. It would be wonderful. But it wouldn't be true. You know. <laughs> be true on one level but on these levels maybe it would not Yeah. They are 
present and um, and with the owners is relatively easy to be present. And yet with the complexities of the ones I truly love, the ones I live with, mm -hmm. um, the relationships and the thought processes behind the words that are said and the looks that are given are often so complex that it is extremely difficult to be present. Yeah. To see it on all levels and to understand it and take it in before you react before you think. Yes. why we have the, the precepts, um, why we, we agree to mind our body, speech, and mind, pay attention to them, and stay awake to them, not to other people so much as what, how, what I say and how I say it, and how quickly I react it, it brings it all back to ourself. And then doing the dance with everybody else, you, you can't take it too personally or own it too hard or grasp it too tightly. And it's much harder if you're all under the same roof or you're on the telephone with each other every single day and you have a long history of interactions and stories you know each group has its own story as well and each person in the group uh, is is a character in the story and is supposed to behave in a particular way um, in families there's a whole dynamic about that and if it's not conscious it's very hard on everybody so the more conscious everybody is of of how that story is being played out. And the more conscious each one of us is, if, if I'm the only one who's awake in the family, that's still, um, that's still the whole thing happening. And in some cases, that's all we can do. You know, is simply, and, and simply let it teach us as it will. Sometimes they say, the way they tell us, that um, the pain in our knees is our teacher. Uh, they say our family is our teacher. And in both cases, it's kind of mean. You know, <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> but in both cases, I think it's true. I think we learn the most when we're right up against it. And if we can see Buddha even there, it's not easy. Yes, yes, because we have no choice. <laughs> yeah. Yes, as much as possible. Yeah. Yes. Living with the kind of intentionality 
practice. But every now and then, somebody called me up one time, somebody that I had a 10 minute encounter once with when I was working at a hospice, and I had forgotten about the person. And a year later, called me on the phone and told me how important that encounter was, mm -hmm. and how much it helped him mm -hmm. at a very difficult time. And the moral of that story is that's the fruit of an intentional life. Yes. And we don't know. We don't need to know. And we don't need to know. No, better not to know. <laughs> the more we keep trying, the more we're trying to do it. Yes. 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 Part of the beauty of the practice is the part that says, just sit still. Yeah. And be ordinary in the moment. And just let that come from you. Yes. Um, and just from that, walking around in the world with the kind of energy you stay around. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I always say we don't know what kind of wake we leave behind us because we're, you know, we're at the tiller. We're we're guiding the boat for forward. Riding the waves. Yes, yes, yes. Well, maybe on that note, it's a very nice note to stop. Thank you. Thank you all.